What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, it's been a while since we talked about our old mate, Jason Furman. Uh, has he paid his bills? He has paid his bills. Oh, okay. So we should record him a new ad. Surely he has a website now? Uh, no, he does not. Oh, uh, maybe he's provided a direct phone number people can order through? Uh, I'll just check. Nope, no phone number either. I like the way that you're actually pretending to look whether he has provided <laughs> <laughs> So if you want to get in contact with Jason, you still have to do that through Facebook. It's uh, Einswick Dog Quip, E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K. Jason can hook you up with all the things you might be interested in getting, the Firepaw Mills, which a lot of people are getting and loving. Mm. He has Herm Springer products, if you're into those. Yep. He has balls, leashes, tugs. Yep. And at the moment, he has a 10% discount on all Canine USA products. That's pretty cool. And I believe he's got a lot of the other stuff that you can use to compete in GRC as well, such as the sleds and the mm-hmm. spring poles. Yeah, that's correct. He yeah. sure does. Well, that's so great. That's a sport that, taking the world by storm. Yeah. So if you're into that or you just like training your dog, having a good time, have a chat to Jason on Facebook at Einswick Dog Quip. Yep. Send him an inventory via Messenger and get your gear. <laughs> <laughs> get a website, Jason, you bozo. Yeah. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Glenn Cook, and joined in studio is my co-host, Patrick Stewart. Hello. I called you formally, Patrick. He didn't mm. even budge. No, well, I was curious, <laughs> but here we are. Here we are. You know, my middle name's Robert. I have three first names, Patrick, Robert, Stewart. You can put that in any order. It wouldn't matter. I got told once upon a time never to trust a man who's got the first and last name of a person. Well, here we are. And that leads us on to our next topic. (laughs) (laughs) So today we had a listener suggested question. Nick said that we, listener suggested topic. Nick said that. Nick who? Nick Dalton. Nick Dalton. Nick Dalton. Yeah. Loves a question. The man with a thousand questions. Loves a question. Loves a question. You know, he's desperate to get on the show so he can talk about Game of Thrones with us. Really? Yes. (laughs) He's, he's, He's a mad keen Game of Thrones fanatic. Really? Yes. I did not know that. Yeah. The reason this came about is because during the NDTF, I was talking about how you and I were debating about some of the mm-hmm. behavioral things that have happened in Game of Thrones. Yeah. And that happened to pique his interest. And he said, if you ever do an episode with Game of Thrones, you can't do it without me. Right. Okay. Yeah. 100 bucks per half an hour, mate. Yeah. Get on in here, Nick. <laughs> we'll, we'll discuss it. All right. So he said that we should talk about urban myths in dog training. Yeah. And that's a good one to talk about. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, because there's a lot. Yeah. Over the years that I've been training dogs, I've heard just about every single one of them. And there's possibly a time where I thought to myself that some of them were true because they were very convincing, told to me by elders in the dog training industry. Yeah. But they're people who had no fucking idea what they were talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just came up with this concept because some old mate that they were probably drinking partners with told them or their dad told them one day. Yeah. Do you notice that 
worldwide, the more people you sort of engage with and the more people you talk to and have in-depth conversations about dog training, the more you realize not that many people know too much about actual dog training. It is amazing that, and this is what leads on from something, a comment that I made last week is that we're in a time and place where information is so readily available Mm. to us. I mean, I know I spouted that comment so many times, but yet even though we still have that, there still exists these urban myths in society. And really, I smile when I think about it because (laughs) it just makes me laugh that people are still so convinced that some of these are true because they haven't even bothered to try and look it up on Wikipedia or something. I want to start. Okay. My favorite one. And I saw this online and I've brought it up on the podcast numerous times (laughs) because of how outrageous it was, was a dog trainer here in Australia that said you should not feed your dog red meat and inferred that it was because it caused aggression. Yeah, right? it bloods the dog. Well, he didn't specifically crazy. say it bloods. Yeah, I've but heard other people say that. But that's where it be, comes from. Yeah. When we're about to laugh our asses off at this, <laughs> we have to be accurate in what he said. Right, okay. Inferred that it causes aggression and said that you shouldn't feed red meat. And he, he actually wrote, I know this is a controversial topic, but trust me, I'm sorry, my friend, <laughs> if fucking extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Yes. And to claim that what is probably the most biologically appropriate protein for a dog, red meat, right, causes aggression and therefore you should not feed it to your dog. That is an extraordinary claim. And trust me, does not count as extraordinary evidence. Mm-hmm. Okay. So- Where's your where's your PhD? <laughs> but so that's my, that I think is the most outrageous. So the red meat causes aggression in dogs. Or you shouldn't feed red meat to dogs. Mm. Wrong. Even the idea that a dog can be blooded, I think is is a little bit outrageous as well. I think for sure that a dog can like bite and then have a good experience and think, oh, I like that. I'll do it again. But the idea that yeah, the reward tasted- from a predatory experience yeah. is something that the dog thinks, oh, I actually enjoyed that because I got to chase down, catch this prey item, yeah. kill it, eat it. It satiated my hunger. Yeah. You know, I mean- yeah, that's like exactly. normal biology for a predatory animal yeah. that needs to hunt to survive. But the idea that like you've accidentally cut your finger or your dog bit you because you did a bad and presentation. And turns into a werewolf. Yeah. You, you did a bad <laughs> presentation with the tug and got your finger bitten and now your dog has the taste for human blood. Yep. Is, is that right? It's the same with like sharks. Like I get, you know, you see like, oh, it's got the taste for blood. Now we have to have to have to hunt it. Like, no worries. If you want vengeance, go for it, right? But the idea that that shark ate a delicious human and now is only going to eat humans thereafter is outrageous. They just take Sharks meals. are just machines. Yeah, They're just, they just triggered t- by... They take the meals that are available. That's right. Anyway, so that's my favorite urban myth about dogs. It's crazy, right? Blood them. I put up a post with Remy one time. He bit his own tongue. Yeah. There's blood all in his mouth. And I was like, oh, no. He's going to kill himself. He's blooded. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> does this beca- Does he become self-loathing or does he become dog aggressive? Like, how does it work? He's going to wander the neighborhood at night now just randomly picking off dogs like yeah. a serial killer because yeah, he's yeah. thought, oh, well, I can't help myself now. Yeah, I've got the I've, taste of blood. I've tasted blood once. Yeah. Got um, the taste for blood. So that's my favorite outrageous one. Yep. What's yours? The one that really triggers me is the one that another trainer in Australia was claiming that you have to spit in your dog's food <laughs> to teach the dog who's boss. Wait, you uh, have to... Do, who, who, who are you talking about? You'll have to cut the name out. Benton! Really? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Leave that in. Just beep it out. It's shameful to think 
I would say that even pre-30 years, that to say that sort of thing and be convinced about it and to try and convince other people, have them convinced about it, do it, and still think that that is a tangible excuse to being able to control your dog. So, what's he saying? What It's because you're introducing your enzyme to the food. What you're basically doing is, is saying to the dog, this food is mine. I'm giving it to you. Therefore, I'm in charge. And it's a whole dominance process with the right. dog, which is- Total bullshit. Mm. I mean, your scent is all over that food regardless. I mean, if you think spitting in food is going to contaminate your dog's food any further when they're all fact We've just done a Patreon episode about scent detection. And if you think that a dog's super sense, like its ability to detect odour, needs fucking spittle in food (laughs) to get that dog to understand who's boss, you need your mind ready. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think a lot of the urban myths actually revolve around food. Yeah, they do. Yeah, that is that is absolutely true. But they also evolve around people who are actually shit dog trainers. Yeah. I think they're people who are so poor at training dogs that they need this But like that has to come from them. somewhere. Like it, it, it has come from somewhere. But it's it's something that your old mate uncle used to make up. You know, like yeah. they it, I think they just People who impress upon you that they know something about dogs when they know nothing about them at all. Yeah, but like for you to develop that opinion, everybody's opinions is swayed by their experiences, right? Yes. So take old mate that thinks dogs shouldn't eat red meat. Like he has had enough experiences that he's saying this. Like his extraordinary evidence is probably like a case of like two dogs where he asked, what do they eat? And they said red meat and he goes, change it to chicken. And then- you know, and it stopped the behavior. Yeah, it stopped whatever the behavior. Aha! Uh-huh. I found uh-huh. it. I found the secret yep, source, the Holy Grail. Yeah. So, like, there has to there has to be a basis in with all urban myths. It has mm. to be trackable to something. There has to be something. Well, and if I, you've got if you've got extraordinary evidence, anybody out there that supports any they? of these, that please bring it forward. Even, I mean, we'll stop laughing if you can produce tangible evidence that yeah. links it to a relatable behavior. So take this one, right? So people say- Happy to be um, proven wrong. Of course. Hmm. Oh, well, if my job can be as easy as saying, don't eat, don't feed the dog. Do, what do you feed the dog? Red meat? Oh, no, don't do that. Give me my money now. My $700 it is because I think that's what he charges. At wow. Yeah. Anyway, another really popular urban myth in dog training around feeding is like, you must eat first in front of the dog and then feed the dog after that so he knows who's boss. Mm. And I get, like, that's nonsense, but I get where that came from because you can look at, say- It's all dominance theory. Yeah. Mm. You can look at, say, a pride of lions and the daddy lion gets to go and eat his fill and then- The daddy lion. Yeah. Who's your daddy and what does he do? <laughs> He's a lion. And, <laughs> and so then he he eats and then everybody else gets their turn. Mm. And I imagine that some person looked at that and went, I'm the fucking, I'm the daddy lion. Yeah. And my dog is the- the, the other lions, therefore I must eat visibly in front of him and before him and then feed him afterwards. Mm. I can see how they drew that bow. I understand where they got to that position. It's totally wrong and it's not important, but I see where they got there. But spitting in the dog's food, I don't oh, understand how you get to it? that position where you're mm. like, now – now I own you. You're, yes. Yes. Like you need to do a bane, a bane <laughs> voice right there. This registration tag is nothing without my spit inside of your, yes. in spite of your food. Oh. <laughs> now that I've spat in your food, I own you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I I don't understand where that could possibly have come from. Yeah, it's bizarre thinking, and 
I know for a fact that there have been dogs that I've gone out and done training sessions with them that when we have changed the structural order of who gets what first, it's calmed the dogs down. Mm -hmm. Like that's relevant. And I can see that in situations like that, that it's alleviated stress in the house when certain dogs are treated with preferable pecking order over other dogs. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, over other dogs. Other dogs in the household. Yeah, but not for you and the dog. No, not between you and the dog. Yeah. It's simply that the dog understands that in the pack system, which does exist, sorry guys that don't believe in the pack model, it does exist, okay? I mean, harmony exists in the pack and we know that can be reshuffled and reorganized and restructured, but in a harmonious pack that has structure and does have order amongst itself. Because I've had own disruption with my own dogs. When Narelle and I first got together and she had a Doberman called Soldier and she introduced him into our our household, he reorganized and caused absolute calamity in my pack of dogs. I had two males, two female Roddies living together. Mm -hmm. Everybody was harmonious until he arrived. When he arrived... It's like somebody reshuffled the cards and everybody was trying to kill everybody. Yeah. It just went crazy. They all hated him. Every one of them just hated him immediately. And no surprise, he was a pain in the ass. <laughs> he, he's my nemesis dog. He was a nice dog in some ways. And I don't want to totally character assassinate this dog. But the thing is, is I understand that pack reshuffling does happen. Yeah. And I understand that, you know, you do have to... There is a degree of work that's got to be involved in finding out how to create harmony in that pack of dogs that they won't want to kill each other. And sometimes that involves getting rid of one dog Mm. or separating that dog from the group. Yeah. So a lot of the urban myths that we'll talk about, I think, are dominance-based ones. They are dominance-based ones, yes. And like we've discussed on the show before, I think that dominance theory doesn't play the role in training that people think that it did, but it's certainly amongst dogs is is 100% real mm. and, and observable for sure. Yeah, it exists when it needs to. It surfaces when it needs to for it. Like it rises to the occasion when there's a need to and when it's been dealt with, like the dog will suffice that the problem has been sorted out. Therefore, I don't need to be dominant anymore. Yeah, I heard a... Someone who was denying the existence of dominance in dogs saying that it, it's not dominance, it's just a willingness to, what was it? A willingness to fight for resources. <laughs> it's like fucking word. I was like, that sounds a lot like dominance to yeah. me. That, and, and like, oh, you know, a dog might be dominant in this circumstance and they're not in another. Like, because they're, well, what they say is they're willing to fight for resources in this circumstance and not in another. And we go, yeah, that's still dominance. Like, it just, in that, when the, the picture changes, when the scenario changes, so too does the hierarchy or, or their position there in it. Isn't it crazy how people have these wordplay games to sell their own bullshit stories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what is it about that? I don't know. Is it just pure marketing or do they really believe it? Are they really trapped in that mindset? Uh, I've got an example on the dominance thing that we're talking just to fit in with uh, our urban myths thing. I had, well, they were sort of a client. Um, it was before I was like charging people and they had these two dogs. They were a couple that had got together and they both had their dogs. And they were fighting constantly. It was a disaster. And within a second, I was able to see the issue is that the guy, his dog was a mentally strong, very robust, very good dog. I think it was a shepherd. And the the lady, her dog was not. It was a collie of some kind, but it was a nervy, not a very strong dog. But it was the favorite, right? Because 
they'd they babied moved, it in front of Well, the, they'd moved in mm, together yep. and they'd moved into the girl's house. And so the shepherd had to play second fiddle to this collie yep. and he just wasn't having it. He's like, no, like you could see immediately. He was like, why does he get first pick at everything when he's the weakling? Like, yep. and you could see the lizard brain sort of kicking in where he's like, no, I'm more, I'm more stable. I'm more powerful. I'm more, I'm better in every way. You get picked up, coddled, yeah. loved. So they were inside. fighting nonstop, and I was like, you know, the issue is your two dogs have a hierarchy that would be naturally one above the other, and you have artificially put one above the other, and that's why he's not happy with that. He's not going to accept that. Mm. Like as humans, we we just accept, oh well, this is the boss, he's the leader. We we follow incompetent leaders. We do that. Dogs don't do that. They're like, no, you're incompetent. Like you're not you're not entitled to that position. I'm taking it from you. Mm. And it always- That sounds a lot like dominance, <laughs> funnily enough. <laughs> and do you know what? When I told them, just just treat the dogs equally, all the problems went away. That yep. was all they had to do, was yep. just stop favoring the one dog. Mm. And then the other dog, the shepherd kind of took over and did bully the other one for a period before they found their own level. And then there was no more fighting. It yeah. was- I say this with a degree of reserve because I'm not inducing that I want dogs to fight and have the aftermath of- veterinary issues and so forth. But in some situations, dogs need to have the skirmish they need to have. Yeah. They need to they need to physically sort out how it works. Now, in some cases, this can be extremely violent and it's it's not something that I would readily call for. However, there have been situations where people have said to me, my, look, my dogs are – and it's exactly what you're talking about, the same scenario. In fact, I remember speaking about this specifically with Dr. Robert Holmes, who's – uh, regarded and was certainly for a long time as one of Australia's top animal behaviorists, a veterinary behaviorist. And Robert was talking about exactly the same situation in this in a lecture that I went into when I was a young trainer. And I started to see a pattern of this evolving. A lot of times it was exactly the same situation, favoring the soft, weak dog mm. over the strong, more powerful, more dominant type of dog. So when people started to reshuffle that situation is exactly what happened in our home um, when we, we introduced a problematic dog into the into the group. Okay, I say pack reservably because there's a lot of people who talk about stupid pack behavior and they utilize that on their marketing systems, well, which is- pack. pack is the collective noun for dogs. That is, so that's is true. A group of that's dogs a reality is of a pack. Hmm. So just- just Get over settle it. down. Get just, over it. Just calm down, you yes. fucks. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, th- I think that is for sure something that happens is there's a – dogs find their own level. Jay actually just did a really good podcast on this that is everybody should listen to. And In the GRC Dog Talk? Yeah. Yep. And the problem comes when you get dogs who are – who enjoy fighting and are not concerned about being hurt or hurting another dog. Yeah. Like, and for 99% of dogs, they find their own level quite well because they're not interested in fighting. And they actually, they actually do have a fight. Yep. But it's so minuscule and almost unobservable. They they figure out where they where each lays in the system and what they're willing to fight for. Hey, this is my resource. I'm not giving this up. Yep. Yeah, you can have that. You know, this is my special toy. You can eat from the same food bowl as me, whatever, but you can't take my bone. Mm. And they figure all that shit out themselves, absent any physical violence or conflict. Starts when they're puppies. Yeah. Mm. And and then 
it only becomes a big issue when you get a dog that's like, hey, this is my bone, you can't have it or we'll fight. And most mm. dogs go, oh, okay, well, I don't want to fight. That's too high a cost for me. And then you get the dogs that say, hey, this is my bone, you can't have it or we'll fight. And he goes, I love fighting. That's even more reinforcing for me than having that bone. Yep. Or I have been specifically bred over many, many generations to not avoid fights. In fact, now I have to go forward because you've presented me with the opportunity to do it. I have to go forward. Yeah. Or, or I have a mental illness. Yeah. Mm. Or also just like I have no pain center in my body, so I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Like I, and Singleton puppies exist. can be a problem in those areas yeah. because they haven't had the pack contact with their litter of puppies when yeah. they've been growing up. So they don't understand body sensitivity. They don't understand rough play. They don't understand submission. Mm-hmm. So as they develop into adults, you generally find that singleton puppies can be very aggressive dogs to other dogs because yeah. they – they just don't understand the concept of being around or being – they've been with their mother, if they're lucky, if they haven't been rejected and then bottle-fed, but they haven't had litter mates to grow up with and develop all those skill sets and those feelings and develop those neurological pathways. Yeah. So, yeah, people with singleton puppies, they're often people who are first on the list to complain to me, my dog doesn't get along with other dogs, doesn't seem to play nice and seems to fight without an end in mind. Yeah. Without any sort of escalation of yes. force, it just yes. goes bang straight yes. to that. And it, I, I don't have a large sample pool to draw from, but certainly I notice with singleton puppies is they're hard biters when you do bite work with yes. them. Yes. There's a zero bite inhibition um, and they they bite as full as, well, as not as full, as powerfully as they can every time. Mm. Anyway. So, yeah, I think a lot of the urban myths revolve around dominance theory. Yes. And- Certainly, we know for sure it's a real thing, but I don't think it plays the role in dog training that people think that it plays. Like like, like having to go through a door before a dog. Yeah, so that's another <laughs> one, right? So the idea that yep. your dog that, – that is a great urban myth. Your dog cannot walk through a doorway before you that, or else that is him dominating you. I'll give you an idea where I do find that hazardous. When Opie goes through a door, which is Eggy, my French bulldog, mm. when he goes through a door before me, he fucking stops and then I trip over him. <laughs> so, yeah, I can understand it from that point of view because Opie is, I, God love him, he's, he's an awesome little dog, but he's a potato. Yeah, yeah. And he doesn't realize that once you go through a door, just fucking keep going. Yeah, don't stop in the middle don't of the Don't stop door. in the middle of the door, but he'll go through the door and he'll stop. And because he's like, he fits right under your foot, your foot catches under the cavity between his legs and his chest and you just go straight ass over tit mm-hmm. on this little dog. Mm-hmm. And he just, like, even still, you can fall over the top of him and he just looks at you like, what? What? <laughs> um, so I guess that the don't <laughs> let the dog go through the door before you dovetails into like don't let the dog walk ahead of you it's the same thing right like that that is then putting them in the leader's position and deciding on where you go (laughs) can you imagine that from a dog's point of view like i'm going to race to get to this door so i can dominate this motherfucker behind me (laughs) (laughs) see i'm the boss i own this house now yeah it's my fault you can't come in even though i sleep in a box and i get fed what you feed me after you spit in it yeah I am clearly in charge because I got out the door first. It's outrageous. Oh, I love how you tied all that in. Yeah. Um, you just and, forgot the red meat, the red Yeah, the, blood the red part. meat after you yeah. – no, my chicken that yeah, after you spat, you spat in. in my- yeah. Um, so. <laughs> oh, too good. 
Um, uh. So that we've pretty much covered all the, the do- Oh no, the other ridiculous dominance based one is that never let the dog be above you. Like don't let him get on the couch or don't let his head be above your head. Well, I would certainly say that for an aggressive dog, a dog that you've got aggression issues with, mm. that's, yeah, that's a no brainer. I would definitely not, I would simply advise people in those sort of situations, if you're worried about being bitten by your dog, like if you have that issue and you're not dealing with that with a trainer slash behaviorist in some aspect, don't do stupid things like guidance-based obedience or getting down below your dog where you do, where you can get in trouble and you're in the dog's domain and the yeah, dog yeah. is more powerful in that situation. But for a normal domestic dog, and sleeping on the bed is another one. Yeah, yeah. You know, like if your dog sleeps on the bed, it fucking owns you. You yeah. know, like it's lord and emperor of the bed and the household. And it's just, an, it's so funny and ridiculous because, I mean, Harley used to sleep on the bed with me all the time. And this was back in the day where these urban myths were into full swing. And people used to say to me, dude, you're asking for trouble. He slept on the bed for, he died when he was almost coming up to 12. He slept on the bed from a puppy till 12 and never, ever challenged me about sleeping on the bed. Mm. And yet he was a very strong, robust, powerful dog. Mm. And yet if I told him, like sometimes he'd grumble, like he'd grouch for getting kicked off the bed because he was comfortable and wanted to stay there. But I do the same. Mm. If I want to be in bed and Narelle's going to me, get up in the morning and it's a Sunday and I don't want to get up, I grumble and carry on like a pork chop too. Mm. But the reality is he never turned around and just flayed me or thought, now I'm going to destroy you for letting me up on your bed in the first place and now kicking me off. Yeah. I think, you know, the more I think about all those ridiculous things, I think where they come about (laughs) is when people really do have actually quite – Either, whether it is a dominant dog or just a dangerous dog in one yeah. way or another, that not allowing yourself to be put in those positions makes sense. But yep. it's not that the dog does it that it's dominant over you. It's that if you have a dog that is dangerous, then you shouldn't be allowing that. Like like if you've got a, a, a dog that is a dangerous dog and needs control – you shouldn't open the door and just let the dog fucking run through the door. You should control when the dog goes through. Absolutely. Now, it's not a case. It's not that the dog who doesn't understand the concept of a doorway, mm. like he wasn't around in the fucking 16th century when they invented <laughs> post and lintel construction. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he doesn't understand it, but mm. that doesn't make him feel like he's dominant over you. It's that you, you controlling that dog is better. You controlling when he goes through doorways, when you control parts of his life is going to give clarity to that dog and therefore reduce the aggression potentially. <laughs> Can you imagine ancestral man back in the day where, you know, they started bonding with wild dogs and wolves and so forth and he's yelling out to his comrade, don't let the wolf through the cave door. Like, just stop him. Whatever you can do, like, put a stick in front of him. And when did it come into effect? Is archways an issue? Like, is it, does archways an issue if you let the dog through that or is it just doors? Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to ask the dog. Yeah. All right. We'll have to interview the dog. So so that's enough on the dominance-based ones, I reckon. Yeah. I don't think there's any more of those. If you're not seeing the irony already here, if you are listening to this and it's triggering you because you're thinking, oh, you're making fun of me. We are. We are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you do have to update your knowledge base if you're still thinking some of these things that we're going through because they are ridiculous and they're, they're totally outdated. Yeah. And if your mum told you, you really have to go back to your mum and, and ask for that extraordinary evidence as yeah. well. Hey. I, I, like, I don't know if I've told you before, my mum listens to this show and I love my mum. She's awesome. But mm-hmm. I remember my mum when I was at school, she told me information on what a supernova was and it wasn't that. And I went to school 
And I, my cousin Mark, who was really into astrophysics and everything like that, I told him what my mum said and he laughed his ass off at me. And he said, you're my cousin and I've got to stick up for you. But everything you told me is <laughs> fucking outrageously wrong. I went into that cognitive dissonance switch where my mum told me so, it's the truth. Mm. And I wanted to defend my, my, the honour of my mum. So I wanted to knock my cousin's head in for making fun of me and then ultimately insulting my mum. But as I developed and grew up and started to research things and understand science and the concepts of it more, I realised, yeah, you totally fucking set me up for a fall. And she didn't mean to. She just, she knew what she knew and she told me the information. But, you know. I've got a story. Yeah, go for it. I don't know whether I should tell this because this is going to be another one of those dolphin. This is going to be something that people make fun of me forever. Yeah. But I'm going to tell it anyway. It's in the topic of just believing your mum. Yep. So... (laughs) When you do selection for special forces, there's a, there's a session called demarcation, right? So it's uh, like four or three days, depending on how long they go for, but certainly like three nights, four days, something like that, with no food or sleep. So you're active the entire time, like carrying stuff around and doing all these outrageous things. You don't get to eat. So they put you in a point of deprivation. Yeah. Yep. You don't get to eat. You don't get to sleep. Yep. And to the point where you're like hallucinating and you're you're a wreck, right? And and that's when you really get to see what people are like. When you haven't eaten or slept in three days, you really get to have a good window into the per- the, the real person. Anyway, so you do that. And then after that, it's kind of towards the end of the course. It's kind of so it's like there's not too much to go after that. They give you this big feed and it's like this smorgasbord of great food because you just didn't eat for three or four days. But it's one meal, right? So then you're starving again like three hours later and you can't eat that much when you do it because your stomach has shrunk or whatever. So (laughs) on my course, we're in the middle of nowhere and there's this like We've eaten the big meal, but everyone's still starving a few hours later. There's this like pallet of Cocoa Pops because the army just does stupid shit like that. Like a pallet of fucking single package Cocoa Pops will turn up. Yeah. Right? So everyone's standing around there eating these Cocoa Pops. And I'm the thinnest, like I've got a six pack. Like I've only had a six pack twice in my life. Once this day and then another, there's another story about how I got another one. But so- <laughs> Everybody's standing around like- Which probably involves one of your unusual diet plans. N- well, no. It's uh, getting left on a mountain in Afghanistan. Oh, okay. But uh, anyway, so everybody's standing around eating Cocoa Pops and I'm like, God damn, I- I'm starving, but I-, I don't like Cocoa Pops. And people look at me kind of funny. And a friend of mine, Gads, he goes, hang on, why don't you like Cocoa Pops? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I just, I don't like them. And he goes, he wouldn't leave it alone. He's like, nah, hang on. (laughs) He wanted to unpack this story. Yeah, he's like, I've seen you eat chocolate and I've seen you have milk on other cereals and Cocoa Pops is essentially just chocolate milk. So I need to know what it is you don't like about Cocoa Pops. Is it the (laughs) texture of them? Because I've seen you eat rice bubbles and because we'd live together for like a year, we'd join the army together. Because I've seen you eat that. And I've seen it. It's the same thing. I need to understand why is it you don't like Cocoa Pops? And I was like, man, I don't know. I don't like Cocoa Pops. I just don't. I'm not going to eat them. And he he hounded me at it. He's like, no, I need to know why. (laughs) And then I remember when I'm like four or five years old being in the supermarket and saying, and you know, they had the just like a chocolate milkshake only crunchy. And of course they had these ads. So of course I wanted to try Cocoa Pops. And I said to my mum, hey, can we get some Cocoa Pops? And my mum said to me, nah, we've had them when you were younger and you don't like them. And that was it. And that stuck with me till I was wow. 20 years old and chose starvation 
over Cocoa Pops because when I was like four or five years old, I remember being in the supermarket and asking my mom for Cocoa Pops and she's saying, no, you, you don't like them. And that's the power that you carry from things your mum tell you. Oh, when absolutely. You absolutely. Because they're your, they're your first trusted source of information. Yeah. Like when your mum, dad or your uncle tells you shit, like you believe that shit and you carry it with you. And I had a similar experience. There were these biscuits and I think they were called – Garibaldi's or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And basically what they were is like a pastry on the outside and on the inside it's like crushed raisins. Mm-hmm. And my I asked my uncle what the, the red stuff was inside and he said it was crushed ants. <laughs> and like I had one in my mouth when he told me and I spat it out. And for years I would not touch one of those motherfuckers again. I just looked at it and I thought there is no way I'm eating that biscuit because mm. it's got crushed ants in it. It took me, I reckon, until I was about 10 to realise it was Sultana's. Yeah. Because I thought it was crushed ants. <laughs> so anyway, I, I have the Cocoa Pops, right? I'm like, well, I sort of unpack it myself. I'm like, I guess I should try it. It's delicious. Now, next thing I'm on an all Cocoa Pops diet. <laughs> I'm pretty much surviving on Cocoa Pops. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's my Cocoa Pops story. Hey, back to what we're talking about. Urban myths. Yeah, urban myths in dog training. Hey, here's a good one. Dogs see in black and white. Not true. Yeah, not true. That was prolifically touted around town. Up until about, I reckon up until about 10 years ago, still people were saying that dogs were seeing in black and white. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we know that dogs don't or do have a color range or a color spectrum is that they have rods and cones in their eyes, yeah. not dissimilar to us. So the ratio is the other way to us though. Yeah, they've, got, like a, they've got a limited spectrum. Yeah. And I believe that they have difficulty seeing like red items, like they've got a, like a red green deficiency. So red balls in green grass and so forth. They have a, a color distinction of being, of finding that difficult. And I understand what it's like because I have a red green deficiency. Mm-hmm. I can see, I, I can see you wearing a red top now. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I know what the color green looks like, but combine the two like put one over the other, like blood on grass or anything like that. I all, I all it looks like to me is dark green grass. Right. So other people can distinctly see it like they can see a red blood splatter on grass. I can just see that it looks like mm. grass with yeah. – it actually looks like grass with oil on it to me. So it's something similar to dogs. I can't remember yeah. – I, I did know this very well and we probably should have done some research for this, but uh, – that's rods and cones and, and dogs have the opposite ratio to us. And yep. so a limited spectrum. Yeah. So a limited spectrum of colors, some colors look different to other colors. So it, it, I believe like green, they think maybe looks orange to dogs or grass actually looks orange to them. Mm. But I mean, how can you measure that? Well, exactly? that's only a visual concept of what we imagine yeah. it to be because nobody has been able to look through the eyes of a dog, yeah. but we do know that they have the rods and cones. So we do know that they have a visual color spectrum. Yeah limited to ours because they don't have as many rods and cones. So in again, I, I've, I've I think I've used the example of mantis shrimp where they've got an extensive amount of rods and cones and it's believed that they can see ultraviolet, infrared and the whole color range that we can see yeah. as well. So they can see in and out of our color spectrum and everything else. Mm. And I think what is interesting about – there's two things I find interesting about dog vision is it's it's a hunter's – they're a predator-type vision. So if something's moving, they can see it. So, yep. And you can test this yourself. If you get your dog's ball and you go out on a really dark night and get your dog's toy – if you throw that while it's moving, they'll see it no problem. Mm. And, and they'll, even if it's, you're unable to see it, so long as it's moving, the dog will see it no problem at all. It's when it goes still and it's no longer moving, it sits in the grass, that's when your dog will have a hard time seeing it mm. when it's dark. It, so long as there's movement, they can see it. And that's that's true of a lot of um, 
you know, predator-type species that are hunting things, especially at night. Yeah, I there was some information I read up on it a while ago, and unfortunately, I've forgotten most of it. But I, it, there is something to do with that reflective capability when you shine a torch on a on a dog or a cat or a rabbit or anything like that. Anything that has that nocturnal ability to have visual spectrum at night, mm. there is something about that which allows them to see uh, have that that uh, specific night vision. Mm. Someone will Google someone it. Will, someone will talk about it. I did know it. I, I read a lot about it in one of the books I was reading, but again, it's been so long ago. And Hey, here's another one on dog vision. Sure. You know they say dogs can't see TV? Mm. That's bullshit. Well, it used to be true, but now it's not. So the old TVs- Wow, okay. That, yeah. Yeah. The old cathode TV. Yeah, so yeah. dog can't see that. Okay. But they can see like a modern flat screen TV. Yep. I know that because I've seen my own mum's dog run up to the TV and watch dogs running around and, yeah, yeah. and tried to interact with them. Yeah, so that it's a, that's an interesting one that that used to be true. That was the case. Old school TVs, a dog can't see it because of the way that the, the colours were made on yep. the TV, but new modern TVs with the full spectrum, they can see. Right. That's an interesting one. That is it? very interesting. Because like, yeah, it's certainly observable. Lots of dogs, you, you see lots of dogs watching TV, happily sit there watching TV, especially if there's other dogs on there, they enjoy mm. watching them do stuff. Hey- we invite our listeners to chime in on the discussion group. So if you have extensive information on this, like the color spectrum that dogs view in, their capability to hunt at night with their nocturnal sight, uh, if you have more information that we do, chime in. We'd love yeah. to upgrade our skills and knowledge and certainly for our listeners as well. So we, we do have numerous vets that listen to the show and we, after all, are just two dickheads talking. Yeah. So please educate us and the group. There's always room because we're trying to dispel the myths. Well, I mean, we are poking fun at people who say these sort of things, but it comes with the serious side of it as well, is that if we can be further educated on correct information, then we're less likely to tell clients and our own children bullshit into the new century and new decades and so forth. Here's one. Yeah. A wagging tail is an indicator of a happy dog. Mm. Yeah, I've seen some dogs in my time that have had wagging tails that have wanted to chew the shit out of people before. Yeah. And I think that's just the indication that the dog is happy in his own mind. No, not even that. I think that it. it I think that a wagging tail is an indicator of arousal and nothing yes, else. Yes, yes. That's, that's the... I saw a brutal video yeah, of a dog know, being eaten by a, like a mountain lion. And it, if you were to somehow cover the section where you can see the dog getting eaten, but if, if you couldn't see the mountain lion, you would say it's the happiest dog ever. He's like ears are up, tails wagging furiously. Everything about that dog's body language looks happy yep. as people would describe it, but it's extreme distress and it's arousal. Like he's, yep. he's highly adrenalized. Yeah. And he's dying, mm. but it appears as though he looks very happy. So I usually tell people that the, that wagging tail, people will use that to justify all kinds of bullshit yep. when it's just arousal. Mm -hmm. It could be even extreme fear can can demonstrate it. Like it's not always a tail tuck, right? Mm. Like it, it can manifest as a wagging tail for sure. Do you know why a dog tucks its tail? No. I only found this out the other day and it's something that I was curious on and it came through listening to Sapolsky again. Mm. The reason, according to Sapolsky, of why a dog tucks its tail is to cover the scent that it's giving off during the time that it's feeling the fear uh, and arousal. Yeah, mm. okay. So like if it's fired its anal gland or something yes. like that. Yeah, if there's any type of scent discharge coming out of the animal at the time that it's feeling that anxiety, it puts its tail over its genitalia to try and mask the smell. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. It is interesting. Hmm. Mm. 
I don't know how successful it is, but it's an attempt it's an to attempt, do so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yep. Yeah. That seems like a biological reason. Mm, for it does. Sure. Yeah. Got anything else on tails before we move on to another one? Nope. Here's one. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, that's absolutely bullshit. <laughs> I, this does piss me off when you hear people. I have had numerous clients with dogs that have, you know, issues or whatever. And then they say, well, you know, we'll make sure we won't cause this on the next one. And they start talking about prepping for the next dog. And I'm like, fuckers, you have this dog. Like, how about we train this problem away and we don't worry too much about the next dog that you don't even have yet. Like you can train this one. It- you can teach an old dog anything that you can teach a young dog. It's just you've got to look at the physical aspect of the dog, like how healthy is the dog and how motivated is the dog. Like if the dog, if all of those stars fall into line for you, then there's no problem with educating that dog in further. You can't teach a a very sick dog or a dying dog new tricks. That's true. So if you've got a geriatric dog that's in pain all the time and like its motivation is to protect its pain or trying to alleviate its pain and it's got no interest in learning the skill, then I'm going to say, yeah, you're going to have a real hard time trying to teach that dog a new skill. So I've had clients before that have had old dogs that have got terrible arthritis in their hips and the dog is in constant pain and they've tried to teach the dog things and they've said, oh, my dog just doesn't like doing this. And it's I'm saying because it triggers the pain. You know, like when you're trying to sit your dog or drop your dog or get your dog to hop onto something, it's triggering pain. So it's actually punishing the dog for trying to attempt to learn the new behavior. Mm -hmm. That's why the dog doesn't want to do it. So the dog has, like I said, if you found some alleviation for that pain, like a a drug or an operation or anything like that, I'd said, you'll find that dog would want to do that behavior. Mm. Okay. And I said, because its mind is constantly like thinking at this point in time, I'm in so much pain all I can think of and focus on is not being in any further pain, yep. like not increasing the level. And you would understand this. You're a guy that's had a broken back or mm-hmm. still living with the mm-hmm. the aftermath of a broken back and you still have to go into pain management. Mm-hmm. But you can learn new things, but it doesn't bode well for you when you're in extreme pain. Like yeah. when you're in extreme pain, you know, there's been times where you've said, I'm going to have to bow out of tonight because I'm in extreme pain today. I've twinged my back and Mm -hmm. I have to go and see someone to alleviate my pain. But when you're not in extreme pain, you're open to new ideas and doing new things Yeah, like everybody else is. I think as well the idea that you can't teach an old dog new tricks is why people give up on older dogs and try and get a new dog to fix their problem uh, is not that a new dog will learn anything quicker – or the older dog takes longer to learn. The problem is the older dog has a reinforcement history already. Yep. And so while you're trying to show your dog, hey, now this is what's reinforceable, he will offer a variety of behaviors that have been reinforced for him in the past. Yep. So if you have suppressed your dog quite a lot and then you realize, oh, hang on, that guy that thinks red meat is bad for dogs has also just taught me to suppress my dog. Mm. And now you start feeding red meat again and get a trainer that's like, hey, we could teach your dog to do cool things. Your dog has had a large reinforcement history, maybe negative reinforcement, but reinforcement nonetheless into not doing things. Mm. And so you have to overcome that. Now, it's not that it's any more difficult. It's not like you need some kind of magic. It's that he's just, he's found his advantage very strongly somewhere else. And it's going to take a lot more advantage into the new behavior. So it's because of reinforcement history that it can be harder to train uh, an older dog. Mm. 
and it's not that – so if the dog has a good history of doing the things that you want, then teaching uh, the new similar behaviours will be very fast. Yeah, when you've got a strong fixed behaviour that's been with you for most of your life, like trying to trying to encourage you out of that mindset is very difficult. And I relate that to some of my grandparents in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, they've had uh, fixed patterns of behavior on certain things that they've been raised to think or raised to do and trying to get them out of that into another type of behavior. That's when people say they're very stuck in their way. Yeah. And that's the same thing for dogs as well. Like as you pointed out, and I think that term was eloquently used, is where your advantage lies. Mm. You know, and if you don't really see that it has an advantageous effect for you, then you kind of weigh it up and you think, yeah, but you know, you want me to do this and I've you know, this is the easier way to do it. Why wouldn't I do it this way? Like this has always been the way that I've done it. Why not stick to that old way? So if a dog can go back on its old skill and and still feel sensation of reinforcement and can't see the advantage in the new pathway, then the dog is going to go, uh, why? Mm. But if you can if you can weigh it up for the dog and say, well, this new method has far more advances for you, okay, you can or far more advantages for you, I should say, then you can find that the dog will readily turn for it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I just did a really sloppy explanation of that, but you know what I'm <laughs> trying to say. You get it. This was your one, Glenn. Urban myth that Ridgebacks kill lions. Oh, yeah. That was one that I heard when I first entered into the training scene that the Ridgeback was synonymous with hunting down and killing lions. Well, I don't know any Ridgebacks in history that have hunted down and killed lions. I'm not saying it's never happened. It may have happened once and then the (laughs) urban myth was created around that. What I do know about Ridgebacks is that they were used in order to flag out and hunt down lions, but never to bring them down and kill them. Right. Yet- I think there was another urban myth around the Ridgebacks, that the Ridgebacks became so strong and powerful that they had to introduce a submissive gene into the dogs so they wouldn't turn on their handlers. Yes. That's funny because I've had a few clients with Ridgebacks that are all sweeties. Like they're They're, they're big dogs, but they're just really docile. A lot of them are sissies. Yeah. Yeah. Now, again, I'm... And I know there's going to be people out there who this is definitely going to trigger, <laughs> but I'm going to throw caution to the wind and I'm going to say it anyway. Yep. I believe that it's from a lot of poor breeding practices and show people yeah, uh, who don't care about the temperament of the dog. Some do. Like, don't get me wrong. I know people and you know people in the show circuits that, you know, this is my uh, get out of jail free card. <laughs> uh, but I know people in the industry, in the showing industry who do very much care about the complete dog, but there's a lot of them and the the vast majority could not give a shit about it. Mm. What they're simply trying to introduce is a better looking dog. A prettiness competition. Yeah, it's, it's a catwalk competition and I'll throw everything else out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the baby and the bathwater all get tossed out altogether because they're basically looking for correct ears, straight back, you know, and if you're talking about ridgebacks and so forth, that perfect ridge and everything like that. Now, if the dog doesn't look pretty, it's not going to win the ribbon, okay? So that's their main concern, not the temperament and behavior of the dog. So if the dog becomes weaker and weaker and weaker through selective breeding of trying to in- encourage and introduce that prettier looking dog, so be it. Mm. And this is why I think a lot of these dogs fall victim to what they become is because it's ultimately a beauty competition. Yeah. Well, and there's no test of temperament. What I would like to see is at a dog show, 
where they have the Ridgebacks doing their breed survey, they bring out a fucking lion, and if that Ridgeback doesn't show a guarding instinct towards that lion, <laughs> well, you're out. You're out yeah. of the gene pool. You're yeah. not tough enough. Because, yeah. I mean, this Could is- Could you the- imagine that? Like, wheeling out of the lion? <laughs> <laughs> out he comes. Yep. But this is the issue with, I mean, fuck, that's a whole podcast in itself yeah. that the- show dogs and their relevance to society and what good it does and close stud books and blah, blah, blah. That will pretty much burn us to the ground, I think. Yeah. I'm not afraid to say it. I've, I've said for ages on here that I-, I You yeah. and I will be treated like Victor Frankenstein and his monster after that. We'll have an angry mob after us with pitchforks and- Yeah. Well, but here's it. Like with closed stud books, it all has to come to an inevitable end, right? Like it, it, you're, working, you're working towards- uh, an inevitable point when you will not allow any outcrossing. Oh, look, to be honest, I just see the breed clubs are just falling apart at the moment anyway. I mean, more and more and more of them just seem to be like whittling down, shutting down. Um, you know, like the the shameful thing is, is that I just see the Rottweiler clubs getting smaller and smaller and smaller and shrinking away. You know, there just won't be anyone that cares enough to get together and wants to defend these breeds ultimately when they're angry eyes of parliamentarians start turning on them again. So this is what happens. Hmm. Hmm. That kind of leads us to talk about the final myth that we had written down that we could talk about Yeah, is breeds and genetics versus training. So one of the things that, that certainly pisses me off is, you know, you'll be, you have a client or something and, and they'll say like the dog's got, it just won't come back, right? Mm-hmm. And they say, "Oh, you know, well, that is uh, we can't we can't work too hard on that because he's a Vizsla. They don't come back." And it's like, "Hang on, pretty sure that's not in the breed standard. <laughs> right? Like, refuses to recall is not part of your assessment criteria at the dog show." Where's your evidence? <laughs> you know, and I think that uh, it's probably because they've been spitting in his food too much, and yeah. they're thinking, "Fuck you, I'm not coming I'm back. Not coming back to eat yeah, that." Yeah, um, it tastes like spit. But I think that breed flavored meat breed is a, a a good first step if you're trying to make some calculations about what a dog's personality is going to be like, and if you can observe his breed, then that's a great kickoff point, a mm. great starting point. But it's not the be all and end all. Like every dog is an individual, and especially the way that people are breeding today, they're like they're breeding as we just said, typically for looks and confirmation rather than for temperament. Mm. So your breed isn't necessarily, especially with a lot of paperwork dogs, it's not necessarily an indicator of temperament too much. It gives you a ballpark, an idea of where to kick off at and go, okay, well, we can expect to see a few of these things, but you can't stick by that because fuck, anything could happen. Mm. That's an interesting concept. And again, it's one of these ones that's been touted long and wide in the industry about specific breeds and their typeset. And You know, like, let's take, for example, the Alaskan Malamute. Now, pretty much most of those dogs that I've seen, you could pretty much typecast them into their breed behaviors. Mm -hmm. Yet, the individualism has to be taken into account. Like, for example, I got told that you could never, ever, ever teach an Alaskan Malamute to do any type of bite work. Well, I taught an Alaskan Malamute to bite a sleeve, to do a hold and bark, to release on command. And the dog did it beautifully. Mm-hmm. Would I rely on that dog in a guard situation? No. It was completely what we were doing with the it's dog. Circus trick. It was a circus trick. But the dog did it. Mm. Okay. And yet I got told it would you could never do it. Like I've seen French bulldogs that have done complete IGP routines mm-hmm. where they'll run around the blinds, they'll do the whole procedure. But I mean, 
in a hot situation, the dog would get round two blinds and probably cark and die on the field, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, again, yeah, you're right. It's circus tricks that you can you can teach the dogs to do it. And, it. and a lot of the times people say, well, it can't be done. This breed won't pick it up. It won't learn the behavior. But if, again, when we're talking about the dog seeing the advantage in the behavior, and if the dog has the drive and the desire to do it and a skilled handler or trainer combination working behind it, the dog will want to do it. Mm-hmm. Of course it will want to do it. There are plenty of German Shepherds that are fantastic dogs for law enforcement. And there's a shitload more of them that aren't. Yeah. You know, they're just- Exactly. They're just completely incapable of doing it. Yeah. They're cowards. They'd run away from their own shadow. They'll they'll run screaming into the night if anybody even looked like an assailant that would come towards them. They're just not typical of what the breed was designed for or structured for. Yet with a little bit of thought, even those dogs- after a period of time, like after a period of time, I'm talking a lot of breedings later, even that bloodline could still produce something that would be significant in working again into mm. the future. It would take a lot of breedings to get that behavior out of the dog. But the reality is, I mean, this is a mess where, you know, like this is, we're talking about spaghetti here and genetics versus epigenetics mm. of all the damage done over many, many years of, of poor breeding practices. But you t- then you can talk about recessive genes after a period of time where the ancestry can resurface again. And if you're out crossing the lines or even inbreeding the lines or so forth to a degree, you could start introducing the concept of a stronger dog back in the line again. But the risk that you take is now that you've got a tainted line in there. Yeah, which you do. Um, I think from an urban myth point of view, what I'm sort of getting at is that people have the impression that the dog comes out like per breed, the dog comes out of the box specifically ready to rock for what you want. No. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, so that is an be, urban myth. Because you have a German Shepherd does not mean that your dog is going to guard the house or guard you. No. Because you have a, a Rhodesian Ridgeback does not mean you are safe from lions, mm. right? Like there's probably other reasons why you're safe from lions. But <laughs> I, remember, I, I remember this guy came out from the UK once and uh, <laughs> he was very in your face about his opinion on dogs. Mm-hmm. And a few people went to him and, you know, they he was – talking about working dogs and a few people went down there and said what do you think of my dog and he said that's a great dog for turning food into shit (laughs) and he said that's all you and like people were totally offended about it as most people are when they you know like they go there to hear good news only to hear something like that yeah and he said do you want me to lie to you do you want me to tell you the fairy tale story that this dog is amazing and he's going to protect you and then some guy will jump your fence and beat the living shit out of you while your dog runs and hides under the couch? Or do you really want to know that your dog will run and hide under the couch? Yeah. And he said, because the reality is, he said, that's a nice pet to cuddle, to feel his fur and stuff like that. And he said, but if you're putting your life on that dog, he said, you were stitched up. Or he said, you need to totally rethink what a real working dog is about. And then he brought a dog out and said, this is what a real working dog is. And then people said, oh, yeah, but, you know, this is a uh, this is an extreme working dog. He said, this is a family pet that's got working capability. And he said, this is a dog that if you jump the fence, this dog would nail you. And he goes, your dog would simply run away. Yeah. He goes, I can make him, when we are talking about the circus tricks before, he said, I can make him do the circus trick, but it is just the circus trick. Yeah. And he said, when the pressure gets too high, this dog is 
bang, he's out of there. Yeah. Well, and on that, the other thing that annoys me about when you talk about working dogs and genetics and breed and stuff, and people say, I want a working dog. Say they want to, we ha- I have people say to me, oh, I want to compete in, you know, whatever protection sport. Um, and can you help me source a dog? And I say, yep, no worries. And I come to them with some options and they say, no, I don't want a Malinois. I don't want the drive. I don't want all that drive and stuff. And I say, no, 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 no. Like the type of dog that you want requires that amount of drive. Now, mm. if we find a shepherd, I want a shepherd because I don't want to deal with a Malinois. Well, the shepherd is going to have the same characteristics, the same traits that make the Malinois usable, that shepherd also has to have. Yep. So what you're telling me is you can't handle a working dog. Like that's what I'm hearing. Because if you're saying, no, I can't, I don't want a Malinois, I don't want to deal with that. Well, then you shouldn't have a working dog of any breed because the traits that you don't want in the Mali mm. is what is required for the work. So like take, for example, your dog Randy is a shepherd, but the, the really personality-wise, he's not really that indistinguishable from a, a Malinois. He's just a very high-drive dog. Yep. That's it. That's mm. that's it, right? Like if, a, if he if if he looked like a Malinois, you'd swear he's a Malinois. Yeah, you'd happily yeah go along with it. Yeah, um, and that's what's required of a working dog. It needs to yep. be that level of drive. Doesn't matter what body it's in. It needs to be in that. So mm. that's what pisses me off when people are like, "No, I want this breed." The other thing that while well, while well, well, we're talking about what grinds <laughs> my gears is then people are like, "Oh, you know, I've got this obscure dog, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do IPO with it or whatever." And it's like, okay, well, IGP, please, please, sir, correct lingo. Like if that's the dog you have and you want to do the sport, cool, no worries. But like know that the reason that world champions are all using the same breed is because it increases the probability of success, Hmm. right? So like you're not that good anyway. So don't, if you're, if you're, if you're looking to compete in a sport and do well, don't intentionally get the off-breed to prove how it can be done because chances are by you it can't. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, so that's the reason why people go with, if you look at police dogs or if you look at dogs doing IPO, uh, IGP or whatever, they're all typically, mm. they're all of the same structure type. And when you turn up with your pity, maybe you'll kill it, but the chances are fucking small. Yep. Very small, and and you might even be the best dog trainer ever. But the chances of you getting that pity that is going to be You're able looking to pull for the it unicorn off, dog, yeah, mm. it's the, the the funnel is is incredibly narrow. Mm. <sighs> That's what and, and, and on that, to go back on our Patreon episode on scent work, when we're looking for detection dogs, we don't give a shit about what the breed of the dog is. All we care about is the dog having the ability. Yeah. So I don't care what skin it comes wrapped in. What I do care about is that dog wants to work, will work, and depending on the level of seriousness that the dog will forget all external distractors and still work for whatever I want to do. Mm-hmm. Now, um, that, that also goes back on that story. Your former tale that you were telling before is you're better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. Mm. And I'm sure on this show many times before I've told the story about when I was an electrician and I end up cutting power cable too short. And my mentor, the guy who was teaching me back then, he came over and he said, mate, you can always cut some off, but you can never cut some on. Mm-hmm. You know, And I never forgot that story. And I think about that relative to your ability to do something like, for example, if you want to be a great boxer and you can't take a hit in the chin well, that's going to affect your career. Mm. If you want a great dog and this dog runs from the side of any sort of stress, any stimulated stress, then good chances are you'll never get that dog that you want. Mm. So you're better off finding the dog you want 
and making sure that you don't get your ambitions mixed up with your capabilities. Oh. Well, you you made a good point of it before is that you said, you know, like you may have the dog, but as a trainer, you might not be capable or willing enough to put in the work and hours to do it, you know? So therefore having all that ability is basically just turning food into shit in your backyard as well. Mm. And yet you've got the capability of doing it. And all that dog is doing is just eating meals and pumping out poo in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, hard truce, but this is ooh. hard truce, but real truce. Hey, I'm out of time. I got to go. But yep. that's been a little bit of a ranty rant about urban myths in dog training. But it was funny. Yeah, there's some funny ones in yeah, there. Um, some of that, some of that shit made me laugh. Hey, I've got a question for you. Yeah. What if I spit into blood and then gave it to my dog? Oh, that's. I don't Would know. the dog explode? No, it definitely wouldn't explode, but I'd, I'd, I just I'd, don't know what would happen. Well, don't know. Maybe we have to test it one day. Yeah, you'll have to get uh, what's his fucking name? Oh yes, put him and Fenton together in the same room. <laughs> See what happens. <laughs> That's two Fentons for the price of one. Yeah. Yep. All right. Hey, let's wrap it up. But hey. I'm sure there's plenty of urban myths in dog training that we missed, and this might be a fun one to get going in the discussion group. So someone start a post and hit us with your hilarious urban myths in dog training that you've heard, and we can have a laugh about all of that. And if we've got anything wrong, please correct us. Like if there's any information that we've discussed that you have uh, science fact, and if you have the extraordinary proof or the extraordinary evidence around that situation, by all means, in the discussion group, say, hey, guys, here it is. You asked for it. I've got it. We would love to be schooled on that type of thing. If I can, and I'm sure you agree, Pat, if we can be educated on improving our knowledge. You know someone's going to now post a photo of a Ridgeback fighting a lion. Oh, good. <laughs> as long as it's not graphic. I don't want I don't want to see things getting their arms and legs ripped off or yeah. anything like that. But if, look, if it's true... If it is actually true that that's what they were bred for, to like to hunt down and kill lions, I want to know about it because I went and did a re- bit of research before I did this and it said that's what they weren't bred to do. They were bred to hunt them and flag them down, not run out there not and engage with not them. engage with them. They're I mean, bailers, not luggers. Well, I mean, if you've seen that video clip of the male lion being attacked by a group of hyenas... You know, there's probably about 20 hyenas there. And as soon as one other lion comes up, there's two male lions against 20 hyenas. They pack in and run. Yeah, yeah. You know, so how could a couple of dogs who aren't even as capable as hyenas, how could they hold down an adult male lion? It's a good question you ask. Yeah. All right, got to wrap it up. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you an extra episode, 10 bucks a live Q&A, and just goes up and up from there. Still waiting on a $500 a month benefactor, but you know, wow. we live in- yeah. We, live we in, had someone that nearly did it. They yeah, accidentally accident, did it. Yeah, put their decimal place in the But they did spot. go to 50 bucks. No, they went to five. Did he? Yeah. Oh. I think. I think he- I thought he went to 50. I can't remember. Mm. Anyway, get on there. That'll be good. And that's it. We've got a couple of we got a couple of busy weeks coming up at the moment mm. with, with some cool guests that will be then available because they're in the country. So if you're sick of listening to us just waffle shit, don't worry. There's some other cool people coming on. All right, Glenn, music. Yep.